From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, for a lot of us, following our doctor's orders means just that, doing what the doctor says. But there's a new way of viewing the doctor-patient relationship called patient engagement. The doctor and the patient meet on more equal ground to decide together on the best treatment. On today's program, we'll talk with patient engagement advocate Dave DeBroncarts, better known to many on the web as ePatient Dave. Dave is using social media to help people get the most out of their doctor-patient relationships. Also on the program, the bionic eye is restoring sight to some patients who are blind. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, most of us are familiar with artificial limbs, prosthetic devices designed to replace arms or legs that might be lost in an accident or combat or missing at birth. Or the most common reason people lose limbs today is because of an amputation, usually secondary to poor blood flow. And a lot of those patients are diabetic. So we know about those prosthetic devices But have you heard about the latest prosthetic device, one that can restore vision? Called the bionic eye, this new technology helps people who are blind to actually see shapes and forms that they couldn't see before. Yeah, the bionic eye. It's called the Second Sight Argus II Retinal Prosthesis System. Big name. Yeah, I know. Why did we? Why did I get that in my script? <laughs> it was first used in Europe, and it was approved for use in this country about a year ago. And since then, 15 people in the U.S. have received this bionic eye. 15 people who couldn't see before. Wow. Our guest today has firsthand experience with the bionic eye. He's Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist and researcher, Dr. Raymond Iezzi. Dr. Iezzi recently implanted the bionic eye in a 68-year-old man who had been blind for 10 years. Welcome to the program, Dr. Iezzi. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. Obviously, remarkable new technology. Is there any way that you could explain how this works to a bone doctor and a (laughs) layperson? Certainly. Well, if you can think about this, um, Mr. Zerad and patients um, like Mr. Zerad who've had uh, a long-standing retinal degeneration have lost a portion of the cells that turns light into vision. So now the, the retina is the back part of the eye equivalent to the film in a camera. Exactly. If people can remember what a film camera is <laughs> remember like. Remember those days. <laughs> and it's actually a part of our brain. It's it's connected to our brain through the optic nerve in the back of the eye. And so some patients lose some of the cells, like the pixels in a camera. And as those cells uh, die we gradually lose our sight. So patients with macular degeneration, which is very common in the United States and certainly here in Minnesota, patients with macular degeneration lose their center vision or pixels in their center of vision. Um, Whereas Mr. Zerad and patients like him with retinitis pigmentosa lose their peripheral vision first. In fact, um, Mr. Zerad lost his night vision before he lost anything, so he had difficulty seeing in dim lighting. And then as things progressed, he lost his peripheral vision and had only tunnel vision. And um, unfortunately, as this went on, he lost his center of vision. So Mr. Zerad was only able to see bare light perception. He couldn't see any form uh, or shapes at all. Is this a common condition? 
It's not too common. About one in 4,000 patients worldwide are affected with retinitis pigmentosa. It's pretty rare. It's an That's what he disease. had, retinitis pigmentosa? That's exactly right. It turns out that only about 8 to 10% of those patients go on to have the most advanced forms of vision loss, able to be helped by the Argus II retinal prosthesis. So you, pigmentosa implies that there's some development of pigment in the, in the retina? That's right. It's a disease that was named in the late 1800s um, because uh, Dr. Donders identified that there were some pigmentary changes in the back of the retina, and those pigmentary changes look like inflammation, so he called it retinitis. Uh, Itis meaning inflammation. Inflammation. Pigmentosa because there was accumulation of pigmented uh, clumps in the back of the retina. And you can see this when you look in the eye and make that that diagnosis that way? Right. When an eye doctor looks into the back of the eye with an ophthalmoscope, but looking at a regular patient uh, just with your eyes, you wouldn't know that anything was going on. We have learned that his uh, son, I'm sorry, his grandson also has retinitis pigmentosa. Did his father or mother have it? Or where did it come from in his family? Clearly, it's a recessive condition so, because it skipped generations. And, in fact, wow. uh, Mr. Zared's grandson actually referred his grandfather to me. Wow. Um, and in just taking the routine history, we learned that uh, Mr. Zared, uh, the grandfather, was affected in a way that perhaps the Argus II could help. Um, beyond that, we don't have history. Um, and it's often the case that a spontaneous mutation will come along and we'll only get a certain uh, degree of pedigree on that. Um, so, so we do know that in this particular case, it skipped a generation, and um, I think it's somewhat um, heartwarming that his grandson referred him to me. What made him a good candidate for this as opposed to somebody else with that disease? That's a great question. So, um, as I said, only a subset of patients really would benefit. So we had to establish that uh, Mr. Zared's vision was actually bad enough that he could benefit from a device that's the first of its kind. I mean, this device is providing uh, rudimentary forms of vision. So many patients uh, may not be able to read the newspaper, and they'll say, well, I'm blind. But um, the kind of blindness that the Argus II is designed to help are patients who can't see hand movements. They can't count fingers. Um, They can barely tell if the lights are on or off in a room. And so that's a very unique sort of severe form of vision loss. Um, making uh, Mr. Zaret a, a good candidate. The, the other aspects of that are, you know, the fact that he's cognitively just a brilliant man. He, he's motivated to, uh, to, to explore and to uh, be productive in his world and his community. Um, so it was clear to me that he, he had the cognitive ability to, to actually use the implant because the implant only provides a, a relatively a small area of restoration. You actually have to use scanning techniques where you move your head back and forth uh, to to scan the environment to determine what's in front of you. And then um, when seeing these flashes of light or electrophosphenes, these are the electrical electrically induced visual percepts, these little spots of light called electrophosphenes, when seeing these, the patient has to be able to reconstruct what it is that they're actually looking at. Because by looking at something, they can't really just tell what it is. They have to use inference to say, okay, there's an edge there, and it's shaped in a curved sort of way. Oh, that's my wife's shoulder. Um, or there are two people standing next to each other. I can see that the that the phosphenes are taller in, in the person on the left than on the right. Oh, that person's taller. 
on the left than on the right. And so this is something that you really have to be highly motivated to use. And in those patients, they'll use it to the best of their ability. So it's a small number of patients who actually have retinitis pigmentosa and then a small subset of those patients who are actually candidates for this new surgery. That's true. And, of course, we want to offer it to everyone who would benefit. Um, In rare instances, there are actually structural challenges in the eye, and perhaps that eye wouldn't be the best candidate to receive this device. This is physically... Uh, an implant that goes both around and inside the eye. Back to getting getting back to the question you asked, how do we put that in? Well, there's an implant that has an antenna, and the antenna actually goes around the eye uh, in the orbit uh, so that it can receive wireless transmissions from the eyeglasses that the person wears that have a camera on them. And so this coil is implanted around the eye so it can receive this visual information. And then it's sewn to the eye wall, to the white part of the eye, the sclera, so that it's held there. And a band of rubber is is placed around it, almost like a rubber band helping to hold it in place. We sew that rubber band to the white part of the eye so that the device doesn't come out. And an electrode array enters the inside of the eye and lays down upon the retina, and we use something akin to a thumbtack to literally fixate the electrode array in the macula, the center of the retina, where 60 electrical contacts lay upon the retina to restore rudimentary vision. So these electrical contacts put a little bit of electricity into each one of them, sort of like a miniature defibrillator, Sort of like a cochlear prosthesis, an implant that restores hearing, this device restores sight by putting electrical current into different points on the retina. So how long does this operation take? Well, our first one was was uh, just over three and a half hours. Oh, so not that long. It wasn't that long, and, you know, there was a lot of discussion. We had a surgeon come to visit to talk talk us through the surgery. I had done many, many procedures prior to this in my research um, uh, to, to become familiar with the surgery, to develop new techniques uh, so that we are efficient. But there was a lot of discussion in the operating room about approaches and, and positioning and things, discussions that probably wouldn't occur on subsequent implant procedures. So I, I would imagine that this procedure would be somewhere on the order of a few hours. So uh, there is no healing, I assume. I mean, right away the patient is able to, to see? Well, we do give them a period of time to heal. So typically we don't turn the, the device on immediately. We, we see them through their uh, approximately a three-week post-operative period just to get the eye comfortable and let it heal and allow that retinal electrode to settle in. Wow. We are talking about the bionic eye with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist and researcher, Dr. Raymond Iezzi. When we come back, we'll hear from Dr. Iezzi's patient, Alan Zirad, about what it's like to see again. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. The bionic eye helps to restore sight in people who are blind. Alan Zurad, a 68-year-old retired chemist from Forest Lake, Minnesota, is just the 15th person in this country to have the implant surgery. He talked with Mayo Clinic News Network's Dennis Dota about his experience. Well, I don't know if I can put into words emotions. That's the beauty of emotions. They're, non, they're nonverbal. But, but the thrill of now being able to perceive, um, for instance, my wife was sitting next to me. I knew she was there. But now that I had some semblance of an image of her, 
was just very, very thrilling. And then realizing that there were other people in the room, my, my son, my grandson, a friend that came down, just to be able to have the recognition that they are present, even though I knew they were there mentally, I knew they were there. But now to say, ah, yes, there they are, that emotion was just, just overwhelming. It just gave a sense of thrill to, to be able to put uh, uh, the image very uh, rudimentary, but yet an image with with the reality that they're there. It's uh, it's hard to describe the emotion, but it was a real real thrill to to go through that experience. That was Bionic Eye recipient Alan Zurad talking with the Mayo Clinic News Network's Dennis Doda. We're here in studio with Dr. Raymond Iezzi. Dr. Iezzi is the Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist who implanted the bionic eye in Mr. Zurad. What was it like, uh, Dr. Iezzi, watching Alan see for the first time in 10 years? From your side of the table, what was that like? It's one of those rare moments that we could clearly (laughs) say is one of the most rewarding moments of our career. Uh, to have been able to impact Mr. Zerad uh, and his family in that way was truly a gift to have been able to participate in. Was his whole family there when you, what did you, you turn something on? I mean, how did you all of a sudden make it work? Well, you know, this is kind of an interesting idea, but the, the retinal prosthesis allows us to directly connect to Mr. Zerad's eye with a laptop computer. So we can turn this on and off, and we can put patterns of visual information on the screen, and Mr. Zerad will see them. So it's a computer brain interface in many ways. So, um, yes, in fact, we turn the device on. Now, Mr. Zarid has a belt pack that he wears that, that takes the picture from a camera on the glasses and interprets that picture and then sends a more rudimentary signal to the actual implant itself. That computer can be adjusted so he can make things that are white turn black and vice versa. He can adjust the contrast in other settings. So the glasses send the image to that little antenna that's wrapped around his eyeball, and then that sends it to the to that optic nerve? Well, there's a computer chip um, encapsulated in a titanium-welded case. Whoa. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated and, and really advanced. It took over 20 years to develop. Um, and Second Sight did a great job with that. But uh, that computer chip interprets the signals from the antenna and then sends pulses of electrical information onto the retina, onto those ganglion cells. Those cells form the optic nerve, which then ultimately sends the visual information to the brain for Mr. Zarad to interpret. This sounds so complex. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of things that could go wrong. Reliability-wise, uh, is there enough history with this device that you know that it's reliable? Well, uh, one of the things that, that I was very pleased with, having having participated in this field uh, from from 1998 uh, till now, um, I was very pleased with the way this was designed. It started out actually as a cochlear prosthesis, one that was being used in patients. And ultimately, they modified the design around that technology, which had already been proven as a chronically implanted and safe uh, device, uh, and so that we knew that the manufacturing techniques that were being used were going to last the patient's lifetime. So I felt pretty confident. That said, the device was in the operating room. It's $140,000 per device, and we had to have a backup in the OR just in case something went wrong. And at any point during the procedure, the device could ultimately fail. You know, we're dealing with sharp instruments and various clamps and uh, uh, devices that could ultimately damage it. So we had to be very careful. And throughout the surgery, we were actually testing and querying the device using a computer mm-hmm. to make sure that at each step of the procedure, it was still working. So, and in the in the last Last hour of the procedure, three hours and 20 minutes in, if that device uh, had some failure, we, 
we could have potentially had to remove it and put the new one, another one back in. The $140,000 oh. backup. Was there one on each eyeball, or did you just have one on one eyeball? No, we, we actually just chose one eye to okay. implant. At this time, the device is really designed to work with one and only one eye. So that's, I was wondering then, does he see in 2D or 3D? Well, he, he has mono uh, vision. He doesn't have stereoscopic vision. Okay. So it's, one, it's two dimensions, okay. not three dimensions. Um, but, but so distance-wise, it's not that great. Uh, well, there he does. He can see images in the distance and at near. Um, it's difficult for him to determine if something is far or close sure. because we tend to use size of objects as a perspective uh, when using one eye. So it's a bit challenging from that standpoint. But what Mr. Zaret does do is he scans using his head position so that he can look left and right, up and down, and identify where in, in his visual world a specific object is located. And I would suspect his brain will learn that if he sees something smaller next to something larger, that it's likely that the smaller thing is behind the larger thing? Will his brain learn that? Yeah, I think it will. In fact, early on, if, if you look at some of the video that we, we have online, you know, he could clearly see that objects were narrow. And we, we had a statue over on Gonda 4, and it was a very th- a tall, thin statue made of glass, and it was in a glass case. And he could see that there was a transparency to the glass case around the thin statue. So very early on, minutes after the device was turned on, he was already getting cues about transparency. Brain is amazing. Sure is. <laughs> I suspect that you have the feeling that you have just scratched the surface, that uh, with with time the vision's going to get much better, the device will be even better and smaller, right? I agree with you. You know, in 2015, we currently have a 60-channel device. Um, I- imagine if a patient had a 600-channel device, one one um, one one. F- uh, order of magnitude higher number of channels would result in, our, according to our calculations, in a patient who could recognize faces and read. So if we could just simply get that channel count up by a factor of 10, uh, I think we would greatly improve the functionality of, of the device. I back. suspect you'll do it, yeah. Yeah, let's go back to uh, Mr. Zered's grandson, who was the one who tipped him off that he should come and see you. How come his grandson doesn't have this yet? Is this in his future, or is he not a good candidate? Well, fortunately, um, for most of, the, of a patient's life with retinitis pigmentosa, they see quite well. And, um, and so the younger you are, the better you see. Oh, good. Uh, and so this is a, a slow and gradual degenerative process. Hopefully for young patients with retinitis pigmentosa, we will come up with methods for protecting the retina from degenerating so that ultimately patients don't need a retinal prosthesis. This device is really a rescue system, and we were we were hopeful that retinal neuroprotective strategies could ultimately prevent patients from ultimately losing their sight. So hopefully he'll, his grandson will never need it, but it's incredible that he has it. Thanks so much, Dr. Ayazi, for coming in to talk to us about this remarkable new technology. It was great to have you here. Thank you very much. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. Aortic valve stenosis is a condition where one of your heart valves narrows and can't open to let blood flow out to your body. 
Treatment usually means valve replacement via open heart surgery, but not everyone can have that operation because of other medical issues. Mayo doctors studied a minimally invasive procedure called transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR. They access the valve through a vessel in your leg instead of through an open chest. Mayo cardiologist Dr. David Holmes says the procedure is a big deal for people who need a replacement but can't have regular surgery. He says the study gives good info on how patients do one year afterwards, and that can help guide patient care. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The search for the fountain of youth. Mayo researchers may have found a clue that could lead us to it. It's a new drug that reduces health problems related to aging in mice. Here's Dr. James Kirkland. And the hope is to move these into various applications so that one day we can use drugs something like these in people. If it works for humans, it could keep effects of aging at bay and extend lifespans. And now, are you happy in your job? Well, USA Today published an article about the happiest jobs in America. Topping the list are school principal and executive chef. Mayo Clinic doctor Amit Sood says to do these things to increase your happiness at work. Make sure the environment is safe and supportive, your pay is fair, there's opportunity for growth, you like and are challenged by what you do, and you feel you're part of a larger purpose. With today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, doctors and patients have been learning actually from each other for centuries. But even in the best doctor-patient relationships, it's usually the doctor who's in the driver's seat and the patient just sits there and listens, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully. So the doctor's making the decisions about the treatment and the care, and it was the patient's role always to just receive the treatment and follow the doctor's orders. Just the way the the traditional medicine. Yeah, however my doctor says, that's where I go. Well, now that's changing. There's a broad movement underway called Medicine 2.0, or Participatory Medicine, in which healthcare providers and patients are engaging on more equal ground than ever before. Social media has been a key driver of this patient engagement, linking people with similar health concerns via Twitter, Facebook, and the web. Our guest today is a leader in patient engagement or participatory medicine. He's Dave DeBronkart, better known to his many blog followers as ePatient Dave. Since 2007, he was diagnosed with, when he was diagnosed, with late-stage kidney cancer and apparently given just a short time to live. Dave has been blogging, speaking, and advocating for greater patient participation in medical care. Welcome to the program, Dave. Good to have you again. It's good to be back. Thanks. So are you, uh, uh, reading your story, it sort of suggests that because you were involved in your care, you lived longer. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, first, I want to emphasize that when I talk about patient-physician partnership, I'm not in any way suggesting that we are equivalent in our contributions. You know, I, in the last couple of years in my speaking, my advocacy, I've gotten exposed to some of the details of how doctors are trained and tested and licensed. And some of the test questions I've seen, they just scare the crap out of me. <laughs> Such <laughs> as? Well, well, a patient presents with 39 milligrams per deciliter of something or other, and further <laughs> testing reveals this and this. What is your diagnosis? And there are nine carefully chosen trick answers mm-hmm. in the multiple choice question. Yeah, and there, you know what we really need for uh, to test for a doctor, to whether or not you're going to be a good doctor? Ethics and common sense. 
and there's no test out there. Well, now you guys are getting ahead of ourselves, so let's go back to the beginning of this story. Well, you well, were talking about the, the, yeah. the tests that you, you see, well, that some of the questions that the doctors have to answer. And what was your point there? Well, so my point is that the title of my book and my TED Talk is Let Patients Help. It's not patients know everything. It's not who needs doctors, right? I collaborate with my physicians. You know, they know more than I do. I have my perspective. I have my personal experience on my case. But to get to your question of, you know, did the Internet help save my life? You know, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, a couple of years ago asked me to write an essay on this. And I knew that that was going to be read by other physicians around the world. I didn't want to just present my opinion, so I asked my oncologist, what would you say to other physicians, David McDermott at Beth Israel Deaconess, one of the tops in the world on renal cell carcinoma? Kidney cancer. Yes. But, well, and I've, I've been told that there are different types of kidney cancer, so, mm-hmm. so for the, for a general public, yeah, stage four kidney cancer. Stage well, four meaning it had already metastasized. Spread. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I had tumors in my skull, my lung, my, leg, my left leg eventually broke. I fainted and landed on it. One in my forearm. I even had one that erupted out of my tongue a few weeks before my treatment, my tongue muscle. I was really sick. Wow, it sounds like it. And what my my oncologist said is, you were really sick, and I don't know if you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so prepared. And what he was specifically talking about, at that time, in 2007, there was only one medication that sometimes produced what looks like a cure, a persistent, complete response, they call it, high-dose interleukin-2, and it sometimes kills patients. The medication the does? The medication okay. does, the side effects. That's a bad That's what side you effect. call a serious side yeah. effect. Yeah. Well, sure. In my case, <laughs> at one point, one of my side effects was something called capillary leak syndrome, the walls of my capillaries opened up so all the fluid leaked out. My legs mm-hmm. became water balloons. My blood pressure dropped to 50 over 30. I almost died. But one of the things my patient community had told me was this is an uncommon disease. And I'm talking a patient about a patient group on the Internet. This is an uncommon disease. Find a hospital that does a lot of cases because they know how to handle the side effects. And, and you really didn't have much to lose by well, going ahead and trying the medicine. And that was the only well, one sure. that was offered to you. Sure. The, you know, it's interesting because my, my oncology team would not give me a prognosis uh, and expected survival because they said correctly that there just wasn't enough good data on patients like me. Now, I am somebody, I know some people just say, I don't want to know, just take care of me. They just want to hunker down and be taken care of. That's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an appetite for information. I want to know. It's one way that I soothe myself. So you went on the on the Internet, learned as much as you could about interleukin-2, only medication available for the condition that you had. And so... Because you knew about it and you could help the doctor make the decision to give you the medicine or you felt more comfortable taking the medicine? Uh, Au contraire. Uh, (laughs) Believe it or not, it was my primary physician who recommended this patient community to me. Hmm. He knew them because he knew Gilles Friedman, the founder of this network of online patient groups formerly called ACOR, A-C-O-R, but now they've got a company, Smart Patients. And he 
said, I remember very well, as he didn't mention it until the biopsy confirmed the diagnosis. But then he said, Dave, you're an online kind of guy. You might like to join this community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did. And w- it's funny because, see, and the point I made at the end of my BMJ essay was the information I got from these experienced patients online didn't replace what the doctors were doing. It supplemented it. So here I am, the one thing that might let me survive to see my daughter get married and have grandchildren someday, sometimes kills people. So I thought, okay, how do I prepare? I went to the Kidney Cancer Association website. I went to the American Cancer Society. I went to the drugs website. How do I prepare for these side effects? And there was nothing in the literature. I turned to my patient community, and I got 17 firsthand stories So when every side effect hit, I knew what it was, and I would not say that that saved my life, but my oncologist's Mm -hmm. words were, I don't know if you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so prepared. Hmm. And so the question for us, there are, this is one of many, many stories, and I'll, I'll be addressing in Grand Rounds tomorrow, is what's going on here, because this doesn't invalidate what we've learned about how to do medicine well, but it's something new, and we can't possibly be optimal practitioners. We're talking about Medicine 2.0 with patient engagement advocate, e-patient Dave. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, patients can sometimes help their doctors learn something new. Myth or matter of fact. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about Medicine 2.0 with blogger and patient engagement advocate, e-patient Dave. All right, it's myth or matter of fact time. Okay, Dave, patients can sometimes help their doctors learn something new. Well, sure. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Even you, Tom. (laughs) I believe it. In all seriousness, uh, sometimes physicians feel insulted when a patient brings in a new piece of information that they haven't seen or has a thought of their own. And I have compassion for somebody who has gone through all the hard work and training and academic achievement that far exceeds anything I personally ever achieved. But the reality is it's no insult to a physician if a less trained person has seen something that they haven't. You know, and totally agree. Totally agree. And it's interesting that sometimes my patients ask me about something or a new drug uh, that I shouldn't necessarily be familiar with because they also have an oncologist. But they talk about all these new drugs that are out there. And, and I truly am not up to speed on some of them. So I, I do learn from my patients. It doesn't offend me at all. Well, and learning is what uh, what you're here for, actually. You had mentioned earlier that uh, during Grand Rounds, something that you had mentioned to the students, you're here to um, make some presentations to the Mayo Medical School students, correct? You're yes. a visiting professor in the Department of Internal Medicine. So, you know, it's, That's it, a pretty big-time title. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just recalling when my <laughs> eyes landed on that email. It's like, what? <laughs> so a visiting professor, your parents would be so proud. <laughs> oh, my mom is very proud. <laughs> very good. Dad's gone, but mom's there. So All what right. are you going to tell them? Yeah, what's the, what's the message? Well, so as an advocate who almost died eight years ago and survived and has nothing to lose anymore, I took that invitation and I said, all right, game on, let's up the ante. I said, you know, because I've given around 400 
speeches and policy meeting presentations since I started doing this work. And what I keep bumping into as a sensible, rational resistance to this idea is that so many people have a career full of experience at the patient being somebody who really doesn't know much and can't know much. And there's a reality today that says that some patients can. Mm -hmm. And this is what in the history of science is known as a paradigm shift, uh, completely changing our concept of what something is. And the, the book that popularized the word paradigm was in 1962, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He talked about the Copernican Revolution, where we realized the Earth wasn't the center of the solar system, and uh, Newton figuring out F equals MA and so on. And so I proposed to the chief residents who invited me here, let's rigorously examine whether we need a new paradigm for what patient engagement is. Wow. What do you propose? Well, I propose a, a scientific revolution never happens fast. You know, sure. and I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm an MIT graduate. I'm not a doctor, but I'm, I'm, I understand the scientific method. So you were an engineer previously? Uh, I was uh, going to be, but things went differently, and <laughs> I ended up working in high tech. I was trained in engineering thinking, but my career, if you want to talk about an industry that changed, my career was in typesetting machines. Oh my gosh. Wow. And then desktop publishing came along, and. And you're a graduate of MIT? Yes. With a degree in? Believe it or not, managerial psychology. Well, that's perfect for a paradigm <laughs> shift in what uh, patients and doctors are going to have to, as you propose, change medicine. So what do you propose? Well, so what I propose is to start a conversation. Not the, I, I don't have an answer. You know, Kuhn in his book, Thomas Kuhn, makes clear that this is a decades-long process because the paradigm doesn't shift until the people in the field agree that the evidence is undeniable. Now, and that's as it should be, because, I mean, if our view of how the planets move, you know, shifted every 10 or 15 years, <laughs> it wouldn't be too good. And so I'm, I am respectfully proposing that we open an inquiry based in evidence. You know, the, so in Thomas Kuhn's model, he said that, you know, once you figure out something like F equals MA for Newton with Newton's laws of motion, then the scientists can all agree there's lots of evidence, this is how things work, and what he calls normal science happens. But then every now and then you're turning the crank on experiments, and the, but then something goes clunk and you get an experiment that doesn't work. And he said, well, that's an anomaly. He calls those anomalies. And when you get enough of those, that's when things start to get itchy. So you're saying that the way that it has been for patients and doctors, between patients and doctors for the last however many years, is an anomaly and needs no. to be a change? No. So thank you. That's a good question. No, that's uh, the way things have been for patients and doctors, I want to be very clear, has been working really well in a lot of cases. You know, I just turned 65, and when Social Security was enacted 70 years ago, the median life expectancy was 63 years. And most of my college and high school classmates are still alive and thriving. The anomaly, so one of the things we have to figure out is what's the unspoken assumption? We used to say doctor knows best. 
Well, now we know that patients can also know something useful. Uh, but there's, see, there are some people who say, for instance, patients stay off the internet. You'll hurt yourself. Or there are, there are policy people in Washington who say patients don't need access to their medical record. They wouldn't understand it. What could they do? And there are some of us who are saying, look, I, w- I want to see what's in there. I want to understand. So the, if we, we may need a new paradigm, a new mental concept of what patients are capable of and what the relationship should look like. So the premise is what? Well, the premise is that in today's world, patients are more capable of knowing useful information and should not be blocked by policy or practice from doing what they can to contribute to their family's sure. health. Sure. If they get a copy of their medical record and it's something that someone thinks, oh, you would never be able to understand any of this, you do have the Internet that can go help you find some of the solutions that's that's locked all up in that medical record. Yes, and there are, there are also idiots out there on the Internet <laughs> as well. So part of the, it, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Can we go back and unbite the apple and just have <laughs> the good Lord take care of knowledge for us? Well, you know, the, um, the Mayo Clinic has teamed up with Google to try to make that better so that the information that you're able to access uh, is good information. Well, and one of the things, honestly, that I said on social media when I saw the first info boxes that came up is Google is taking the Mayo results and resorting them so that Mayo's recommendation isn't at the top. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, I have a, I want, quickly, I want you to tell us a little bit more about your story. So you had stage four kidney cancer, meaning that the kidney had spread basically throughout your body. Yes. Uh, you were on a crash course with death, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only drug available to you was interleukin-2. Uh, as I recall, interleukin-2 had some success, but was certainly not a panacea for what you had. And then you took this drug and... Were cured? Is that what happened? They're hesitant to, to use the word cure. What they call it these days is NVED, no visible evidence of disease. Okay. But, yeah, I was diagnosed in January. The kidney came out in March. The treatment started in April and ended on July 23rd, six months after the diagnosis. I haven't had a drop of anything since. And a year later, my doctor's main warning to me was, you got to go back to losing weight. And now you're a visiting <laughs> professor at the Mayo Medical School. With I know. N- no evidence of disease <laughs> on a drug that didn't certainly didn't do the same thing for everybody who had what you had. It, the, what the, in fact, it was from the patient community that I first heard it usually doesn't work. And it did But for you. when it does, about half the time, it's complete and permanent. Hey, well, patient Dave, we're glad you're here. I, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here. We should add that you blog at epatientdave.com so people can read more about you and uh, probably hear from you at that point as well. Yes, thanks. Epatient Dave, thanks for being here. What a pleasure, thanks. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. And we should mention once again that you can read more from Dave DeBroncart and his story on his website at epatientdave.com. You can also find Dave on Facebook as epatientdave and follow him on Twitter at epatientdave. Speaking of Twitter, do you have a question about health or medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? 
Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions on upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Steepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.